Section 22 of the Underground Railroad, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Underground Railroad, Part 1, by William Still. Section 22. The Arrivals of a Single Month, Part 1. Sixty passengers came in one month, twenty-eight in one arrival, great panic and indignation meeting, interesting correspondence from masters and fugitives. The great number of cases to be here noticed forbids more than a brief reference to each passenger. As they arrived in parties, their narratives will be given in due order as found on the Book of Records. William Griffin, Henry Moore, James Camper, Noah Ennels, and Levin Parker. This party came from Cambridge, Maryland. William is thirty-four years of age, of medium size and substantial appearance. He fled from James Waters, Esquire, a lawyer living in Cambridge. He was wealthy, close, and stingy, and owned nine head of slaves and a farm, on which William served. He was used very hard, which was the cause of his escape though the idea that he was entitled to his freedom had been entertained for the previous twelve years. On preparing to take the underground, he armed himself with a big butcher-knife, and resolved, if attacked, to make his enemies stand back. His master was a member of the Methodist Church. Henry is tall, copper-colored, and about thirty years of age. He complained not so much of bad usage as of the utter distaste he had to working all the time for the white people for nothing. He was also decidedly of the opinion that every man should have his liberty. Four years ago his wife was sold away to Georgia by her young master, since which time not a word had he heard of her. She left three children, and he, in escaping, also had to leave them in the same hands that sold their mother. He was owned by Levin Dale, a farmer near Cambridge. Henry was armed with a six-barreled revolver, a large knife, and a determined mind. James is twenty-four years of age, quite black, small size, keen look, and full of hope for the best part of Canada. He fled from Henry Hooper, a dashing young man and a member of the Episcopal Church, left because he did not enjoy privileges as he wished to do. He was armed with two pistols and a dirk to defend himself. Noah is only nineteen, quite dark, well-proportioned, and possessed of a fair average of common sense. He was owned by Blackhead Bill LeCount, who followed drinking, chewing tobacco, catching runaways, and hanging around the courthouse. However, he owned six head of slaves, and had a rough wife, who belonged to the Methodist Church, left because he expected every day to be sold, his master being largely in debt, brought with him a butcher-knife. Levin is twenty-two, rather short-built, medium-size, and well-colored. He fled from Lawrence G. Colson, a very bad man, fond of drinking, great to fight and swear, and hard to please. His mistress was real rough, very bad, worse than he was as far as she could be. Having been stinted with food and clothing, and worked hard, was the apology offered by Levin for running off. Stebney Swan, John Stinger, Robert Emerson, Anthony Pugh, and Isabella 
This company came from Portsmouth, Virginia. Stebney is thirty-four years of age, medium-size, mulatto, and quite wide awake. He was owned by an oysterman by the name of Jose Carter, who lived near Portsmouth. Naturally enough, his master drank hard, gambled extensively, and in every other respect was a very ordinary man. Nevertheless, he owned twenty-five head, and had a wife and six children. Stebney testified that he had not been used hard, though he had been on the auction block three times. Left because he was tired of being a servant. Armed with a broad axe and hatchet, he started, joined by the above-named companions, and came in a skiff by sea. Robert Lee was the brave captain engaged to pilot this slavery-sick party from the prison-house of bondage, and although every rod of rowing was attended with inconceivable peril, the desired haven was safely reached, and the overjoyed voyagers conducted to the vigilance committee. John is about forty years of age, and so near white that a microscope would be required to discern his colored origin. His father was white, and his mother nearly so. He also had been owned by the oysterman alluded to above, had been captain of one of his oyster boats until recently, and but for his attempt some months back to make his escape he might have been this day in the care of his kind-hearted master, but because of this wayward step on the part of John his master felt called upon to humble him. Accordingly the captaincy was taken from him, and he was compelled to struggle on in a less honorable position. Occasionally John's mind would be refreshed by his master relating the hard times in the north, the great starvation among the blacks, etc. He would also tell John how much better off he was as a slave with a kind master to provide for all his wants, etc. Notwithstanding all this counsel, John did not rest contented until he was on the Underground Railroad. Robert was only nineteen, with an intelligent face and prepossessing manners, reads, writes, and ciphers, and is about half Anglo-Saxon. He fled from William H. Wilson, Esquire, cashier of the Virginia Bank. Until within the four years previous to Robert's escape, the cashier was spoken of as a very good man, but in consequence of speculations in a large hotel in Portsmouth, and the then financial embarrassments, he had become seriously involved and decidedly challenged in his manners. Robert noticed this, and concluded he had better get out of danger as soon as possible. Anthony and Isabella were an engaged couple, and desired to cast their lot where husband and wife could not be separated on the auction block. The following are of the Cambridge party, above alluded to, all left together, but for prudential reasons, separated before reaching Philadelphia. The company that left Cambridge on the 24th of October may be thus recognized. Aaron Cornish and wife, with their six children, Solomon, George Anthony, Joseph, Edward James, Perry Lake, and a nameless babe, all very likely. Kit Anthony and wife Leah, and three children, Adam, Mary, and Murray. Joseph Hill and wife Alice, and their son Henry, also Joseph's sister. Add to the above Marshall Button and George Light, both single young men, and we have twenty-eight in one arrival, as hearty-looking, brave, and interesting specimens of slavery as could well be produced from Maryland. Before setting out they counted well the cost, being aware that fifteen had left their neighborhood only a few days ahead of them, and that every slaveholder and slave-catcher throughout the community were on the alert, 
and raging furiously against the inroads of the underground railroad they provided themselves with the following weapons of defense three revolvers three double-barreled pistols three single-barreled pistols three sword canes four butcher knives one bowie knife and one paw footnote a paw is a weapon with iron prongs four inches long to be grasped with the hand and used in close encounter End footnote. thus fully resolved upon freedom or death with scarcely provisions enough for a single day while the rain and storm was piteously descending fathers and mothers with children in their arms aaron cornish had two the entire party started of course their provisions gave out before they were fairly on the way but not so with the storm it continued to pour upon them for nearly three days with nothing to appease the gnawings of hunger but parched corn and a few dry crackers wet and cold with several of the children sick some of their feet bare and worn and one of the mothers with an infant in her arms incapable of partaking of the diet it is impossible to imagine the ordeal they were passing it was enough to cause the bravest hearts to falter but not for a moment did they allow themselves to look back it was exceedingly agreeable to hear even the little children testify that in the most trying hour on the road not for a moment did they want to go back the following advertisement taken from the cambridge democrat of november fourth shows how the rev levi traverse felt about aaron three hundred dollar reward ran away from the subscriber from the neighborhood of town point on saturday night the twenty-fourth inst my negro man aaron cornish about thirty-five years old he is about five feet ten inches high black good-looking rather pleasant countenance and carries himself with a confident manner he went off with his wife daphne a negro woman belonging to reuben e phillips i will give the above reward if taken out of the county and two hundred dollars if taken in the county in either case to be lodged in cambridge jail october twenty fifth eighteen fifty seven levi d traverse to fully understand the reverend mr traverse's authority for taking the liberty he did with aaron's good name it may not be amiss to give briefly a paragraph of private information from aaron relative to his master the reverend mr traverse belonged to the methodist church and was described by aaron as a bad young man rattle-brained with the appearance of not having good sense not enough to manage the great amount of property he had been left wealthy in his possession aaron's servitude commenced under this spiritual protector in may prior to the escape immediately after the death of his old master his deceased master william d traverse by the way was the father-in-law and at the same time own uncle of aaron's reverend owner though the young master for marrying his own cousin and uncle's daughter had been for years the subject of the old gentleman's wrath and was not allowed to come near his house or to entertain any reasonable hope of getting any of his father-in-law's estate nevertheless scarcely had the old man breathed his last ere the young preacher seized upon the inheritance slaves and all at least he claimed two-thirds allowing for the widow one-third unhesitatingly he had taken possession of all the slaves some thirty head and was making them feel his power to the fullest extent to aaron this increased opposition was exceedingly crushing as he had been hoping at the death of his old master to be free 
Indeed, it was understood that the old man had his will made and freedom provided for the slaves. But, strangely enough, at his death no will could be found. Aaron was firmly of the conviction that the Reverend Mr. Traverse knew what became of it. Between the widow and the son-in-law, in consequence of his aggressive steps, existed much hostility, which strongly indicated the approach of a lawsuit. Therefore, except by escaping, Aaron could not see the faintest hope of freedom. Under his old master, the favor of hiring his time had been granted him. He had also been allowed by his wife's mistress, Miss Jane Carter of Baltimore, to have his wife and children home with him, that is, until his children would grow to the age of eight and ten years, then they would be taken away and hired out at twelve or fifteen dollars a year at first. Her oldest boy, sixteen, hired the year he left for forty dollars. They had had ten children, two had died, two they were compelled to leave in chains, the rest they brought away. Not one dollar's expense had they been to their mistress. The industrious Aaron not only had to pay his own hire, but was obliged to do enough overwork to support his large family. Though he said he had no special complaint to make against his old master, through whom he, with the rest of the slaves, hoped to obtain freedom, Aaron nevertheless spoke of him as a man of violent temper, severe on his slaves, drinking hard, etc., though he was a man of wealth and stood high in the community. One of Aaron's brothers and others had been sold south by him. It was on account of his inveterate hatred of his son-in-law, who he declared should never have his property, having no other heir but his niece except his widow, that the slaves relied on his promise to free them. Thus, in view of the facts referred to, Aaron was led to commit the unpardonable sin of running away with his wife Daphne, who, by the way, looked like a woman fully capable of taking care of herself and children, instead of having them stolen away from her as though they were pigs. Joseph Viney and family. Joseph was held to service or labor by Charles Bryant of Alexandria, Virginia. Joseph had very nearly finished paying for himself. His wife and children were held by Samuel Pattison, Esquire, a member of the Methodist Church. A great big man with red eyes, bald head, drank pretty freely, and in the language of Joseph wouldn't bear nothing. Two of Joseph's brothers-in-law had been sold by his master. Against Mrs. Pattison his complaint was that she was mean, sneaking, and did not want to give half enough to eat. End of section 22. Recording by Maria Casper.